The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Neharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, <clears throat> Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. On that day, Deborah, and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the king of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, sitting on your saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of his villagers in Israel. So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace for 40 years. Thanks, Chris. Oh, I'm on. That's good. Just trying not to blast you all away. Is that all right? Yeah. That's it. 
It's great to see you all today. Um, you, you may know this date. If you've uh, uh, been around long enough, you'll know the day, VE Day. You've heard of VE Day on, on the 8th of May in 1945. Uh, celebrations erupted across the world. It marks, so the date marked the end, the formal end of World War II and after the surrender, the official surrender of the German forces in Europe. And it became known as VE Day. A few months later, Australia celebrated the, um, the surrender of the Japanese forces and they called it a VP Day, which we just celebrated the 70th anniversary of not long ago. The victory, VP standing for victory in the Pacific. Victory in Europe, victory in the Pacific. Uh, the victory brought peace for these people after years of really terrifying war, the most horrific warfare and bloodshed the world had ever seen. These are some of the snapshots of the celebrations that uh, happened sort of spontaneously in the, uh, in the wake of this announcement that victory had been won, that peace, the war was over, that peace uh, had come. What strikes me about these pictures, uh, the thing that strikes me is just, you can just kind of sense the sheer relief and happiness that just oozes out of them. It's not forced, it's not something that they sort of had to make themselves to do. <laughs> it's just so wonderfully authentic, this genuine uh, joy that surfaces out of these peoples, this happiness that they didn't need to force uh, see, these were people who knew the horror of what they'd been saved from. They, they knew something of the horror that was facing them. And then this moment came when, and some of us here will uh, no doubt remember that moment, when that horror was relieved, when peace came. Victory was won, and they just overflowed with joy. Um, I love the just the unguarded joy on their faces. Isn't it beautiful? Sort of uh, not really that common these days, I feel, that this kind of just unguarded joy in, their, in people's faces. Well, friends, this uh, Judges is, all, is a book that's all about victory. It's all about victory. It's, and when we see it uh, in the Bible's big story of the great victory of God for his people, there are, I think, incredible things for us to hear about who the victor is and what it looks like, what difference it makes to live in the light of this victory that we read of in Judges and not only in Judges but in the whole of the Bible story, this incredible victory that brings great joy. Well, um, just keep those sort of images in your mind. Uh, we'll come back to it right at the end. But, uh, oh, there's uh, another one, a famous one, The Dancing Man it's called. They don't know who it is apparently, uh, but just jumped in front of the camera just as it was taken. Beautiful. Um, if you were here last week, you, we, we started our series through this book of Judges. We had an introduction to uh, the, the book it, it, uh, and where it sits in the whole of the Bible story, and we looked at this spiral that goes, this, this cycle that goes on through the book. Uh, again and again and again, um, Israel, the people of God, they forsake Yahweh, they turn away from him and serve the gods of the nations around them. Yahweh hands Israel over to enemies. The Israelites, we read time and time again, are in great distress. They're in great distress. 
And Yahweh raises up a judge, this judge who would deliver them and save them. Uh, and their deliverance brings peace. There's this cycle that goes on. We looked at that last week, but we, we also looked last week how it's not really just a cycle that goes around and around. It's more, actually more like a spiral that goes down and down and down and smaller and smaller and just worse and worse and worse as the book goes on. Uh, as we read through Judges, we'll get hints of that, that. And if you read through, we're not going to cover all the stories in, on Sundays, but in home groups we'll cover large, most of the book. And if we, as we read through that, we'll see this just incredible spiral down and down and down of God's people as they continue to forsake God, they continue to turn from him and serve the idols of the nations around them. Um, it's not surprising then, though that was last week, this introduction to the whole book, it's not surprising then where, that when we come to this, really the start of these stories about the judges, in chapter 3, verse 7, it's not surprising to hear that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and forsook, uh, forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Uh, as Chris just read out, if you have your, and if you have your Bibles open through this, it'll be helpful. We're, we're um, spanning a large section of the book today and I, uh, I think we'll um, bring some important things out. But... Uh, we, we read, uh, Chris read for us in verse 8 that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them in the, into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Cushan Rishathayim. I mean, the name enough is, an, is enough to scare you off. And well done, Chris, wherever you are. <laughs> you, you, know, you, you did a great job, sort of one of those tongue twisters. And then Aram Naharayim to boot, you know, like just to make it even worse. But the name was enough to scare you off. And friends, in the, in the ancient world, in, in the kind of violence of the ancient world, we're not expecting this guy to be particularly nice. You know, we're not expecting him uh, to um, roll out the red carpet for us. But... The first readers would have had even more reason to prick their ears up when they read this name, when they heard this guy. It means Kushan the doubly wicked. Kushan the doubly wicked. That's what his name means. Uh, it could have been his own name, although you, you, know, you kind of think you'd have to have some pretty depressed parents to call you doubly wicked, Kushan <laughs> the doubly wicked. It could have been his own name, but uh, more likely it was kind of a nickname given to him by the people that he was you know, lord over and subjected to his rule. Kind of a sadistic nickname, you know, there goes Kushan the doubly wicked. Uh, it's a loaded name and it would have invoked fear and anger when people heard it. Okay, would have kind of like when you hear names thrown around like Hitler or Pol Pot or Stalin, uh, any of a long list of tyrants who use their power to enslave people to cause great misery. That's what we're, we're meant to sort of feel when we hear this name, not only because it's a tongue twister, but because there's something deeper underneath it, this meaning. Um, but even, even, though, uh, even though it is supposed to uh, give us that sort of sense. There's still a few hints as we read through that we're still um, up the top of the spiral here. We haven't sort of descended all the way down this spiral. There's still a few hints. Uh, things aren't as bad as they could be and they're not as bad as they're going to be. Um, 
The first hint is that they're only enslaved for eight years under this guy, Kushan Rishathayim. It's only eight years. Uh, but there's something else here that's really quite important, this, uh, this hint that really uh, things, uh, we're still up the top of the spiral and there's uh, some signs of hope here. And it's this character of Othniel, this guy Othniel. Othniel had excellent pedigree. I don't know if you, you noticed that as we read through. Um, he's either Caleb's younger brother or his nephew. It's a bit ambiguous. If you, it's, anyway, we can, you can ask me about that later. But either way, it's a connection to this guy, Caleb, who, uh, which is very impressive. Caleb, if you uh, know the story up to this point of Israel and God's people, Caleb's a star, friends. He is, you know, he's an absolute star. It was only Caleb and Joshua, two guys, who made it into the promised land out of their whole generation. And there's an important story that goes behind that. Caleb, we read, he was a courageous guy. He was full of faith, full of trust in God and his promises. Uh, So Othniel, this guy, uh, comes with, we have high expectations when we read about Othniel, um, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. We also read, though, that the Spirit of the Lord came on him. He becomes Israel's first judge and he leads them uh, to war and overpowers the guy with the weird name, Kushan Rishathayim, the doubly wicked king. And then we read in the place of eight years of slavery, Othniel and his victory bring 40 years of peace, a kind of total overturning of the fortunes of God's people. So the spiral has begun, friends, but we're still up the top. It's basically uh, what we're trying to look at here. But in in many ways, Othniel, um, it's a bit of a strange beginning to these stories of the judges. If you've read the judges before, uh, if, you've, if you're familiar with some of the others, um, this story of Othniel, it can just seem a little bit bland. You know, it's just a bit short. Not quite sure what it's doing there. Uh, it, it can seem a bit perfunctory. Like it's just, I mean, when you think about Ehud in home group the other day, we read the story of Ehud, the left-handed assassin. If you haven't read it, it's gory. It's great, you know, like um, Ehud and the, and the king Eglon. Uh, uh, we read on to see, uh, we read about Deborah and Barak. Uh, next week we're going to look at Gideon. The week after, Samson. You know, all these guys with incredible stories. Um, but then what's the deal with this guy, Othniel? What's, why, what's going on here? Even the shortest of the judges, we see Shamgar. He, this guy, Shamgar, he only has one verse. But what a verse, okay? It says, uh, if you find it there in chapter 3, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat. He too saved Israel. Now, I, um, I grew up in country New South Wales, uh, and so when I'd visit friends on their farm, they'd um, use bits of polypiping to whack their cows with, okay? So instead of Oh, you could, uh, perhaps, you know, um, Shamgar had something like this, but I've always had this image of Shamgar running around with a, uh, an old tube of polypiping, defeating 600, Phil- I mean, he had an ox goad, the same sort of thing, 600 Philistines, one man against 600 
armed with a little bit of plastic polypiping. <laughs> but, you know, um, they're incredible stories. Unbelievable. You know, they're amazing stories of God's incredible victories, but then not, not so often. He's, he's kind of easy to skip over. But if we do, friends, we'll miss out something that is very significant. You see, there's no, it's no accident, it's not an accident that Othniel is here at the start of these judges, this list of judges. Uh, without his story, this Othniel story, right at the beginning, we might be tempted, it seems to me, to think that these stories are primarily stories about the judges. They're primarily stories about these, you know, sort of deeply flawed, tragic, but impressive characters who did amazing things. But everything, if we read carefully through this Othniel story, everything through it, even including its simplicity, everything through the story presses home, reminds us that the main character at work here, and actually the main character at work throughout the whole book of Judges, is not the judges at all. It's God who is at work. God is at work. You see that all through this story of Othniel in response to the idolatry of his people. It's God who sends them into the hands of, or who sells them into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim. A conscious and deliberate and loving handing over an act of a punishment on his wayward children that is designed to turn their hearts back to him. And it works, we read there. Uh, the people do return, they cry out to Yahweh. And when they do, Othniel appears. No, God raises up Othniel. God gives him his spirit. God gives Kushan Rishathayim into Othniel's hands. And through Othniel, it's God who brings peace to the land for 40 years. God's the one at work. Othniel is just his instrument to bring about this incredible salvation. Everything about it impresses us that this, what happened here with Othniel and what happens with all the judges we're going to read through over the coming weeks is a gracious gift from God, a gracious gift from God. It sets us up. Don't be distracted by the incredible feats, but by the polypiping-wielding um, uh, warriors, you know. <laughs> Don't be distracted by just to think that these are some random stories about ancient weird guys or, you know, the story of Judges. It's, it is primarily a story about God who is at work through his chosen deliverers. He's at work in them even despite their deep flaws, their sins, their failings, the fickleness of his people. He's at work to save them. So that's Othniel. Uh, in verse 11 there, uh, Chris read it for us earlier, verse 11, uh, we read that the land had peace for 40 years. It's, and it's an interesting kind of phrase, isn't it? It's not just the people who had peace. And throughout Judges, this same phrase comes up again and again. It's the land has peace for 40 years. Not just the people, the land. It's kind of a picture of a holistic, you know, all-embracing peace, uh, a kind of a, an all-embracing picture. 
God's people at rest in the land that he'd given them under his spirit-empowered leader. And it's repeated throughout and throughout after the story of Ehud, uh, the land has peace for 80 years. And then after we read it at the end of chapter 5, after Deborah and Barak, 40 years, again and again, God saves his people and brings them this deep, holistic, all-embracing peace. Okay, well with that, uh, we're going to jump over the details of the story of Ehud and Eglon. Uh, We're going to jump over the details of the story of Deborah and Barak and Jael um, and come to Deborah's song in chapter 5, which we read out earlier as well. Deborah's song, chapter 5. It's a bit of a strange kind of... um, uh, insertion into Judges. It feels like it doesn't quite fit, if you know what I mean. Like Judges is a collection of unhappy stories. It's one of the most violent and gory and depressing books in the whole Bible, <laughs> just to give you a heads up. Uh, it's, uh, and, and then, all of a sudden, in chapter 5, the whole chapter is this song. You get a song. Now what's going on? It stands out, and it, because it stands out, it's worth us just taking a moment to reflect on that. I'll read it again uh, from chapter 5, verse 1. It should uh, be up on the screen as well. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers, I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. It goes on, we read a bit more, but we'll we'll skip over to verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace for 40 years. Just skipping back to the start of that song. um, What is, so Deborah and Barak, they have this incredible victory Incredible thing. That, you know, in, and what is the reason for the song? You see that right at the start. On that day, Deborah and Barak sing this song. Um, the, the back story is that the same cycle has continued, this spiral downwards. Uh, because of their idolatry, Israel has been oppressed for 20 years, not just 8 years. This time it's 20 years, cruelly oppressed. Um, back in chapter 4, we read of a Canaanite king who had, uh, it tells us this curious little detail, he had 900 iron chariots and the Israelites had nothing. They had no hope and they were facing an invincible enemy. And then, as you read through chapter 4, in one day, everything changes. Uh, after 20 years, After 20 years of terrible suffering, suddenly, in one day, their chains are gone and they're free. 
And on that day, we read, in response to this incredible deliverance from God, this amazing salvation, Deborah and Barak sing this song. Deborah and Barak were the kind of leaders of this great victory. Uh, we read in verse 3, it was sung, verse 3, it was sung, it was sung in the hearing of the world around them. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. It's this song that's sort of a public song in the hearing of everyone around. But while it was sung for, so that everyone around could hear, it wasn't, sung, it wasn't sung to them. This song was sung to an audience of one. Do you read that as we, as we sort of read through it? Did you pick that up? Again in verse 3, Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. And friends, it's the same all throughout the Bible. It's the same all through the Bible's story. Straight after God's people, before this time of the judges, straight after the Israelites had been saved out of Egypt, straight after that we have this incredible song uh, sung by Moses and his sister Miriam. You can read in, verse, uh, in Exodus chapter 15, if you're interested to read that one, that is this song, and we read that they, they dance for joy in the light of this victory. Right at the, and, and then it carries through right to the end of the Bible's story. Uh, it is what God's people are destined for, God's redeemed and saved people. Right at the end, Revelation 19, we get this incredible picture, the roar of a multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. It's this same thing that happens all through the Bible's story, God's incredible victory and the natural response of his people is to celebrate it, is to celebrate being saved. That's why it's so natural to us to celebrate you know, our more minor kind of victories. The, um, I, I don't know if the Victor Harbour Hockey Club has a team song, but you probably sung it after your win if you did. Uh, it, just comes, it just comes naturally to us, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, to sing at, in response to a victory. But of course, friends, we have so much more to celebrate, don't we? more to celebrate than even a victory in the hockey, even, uh, even than a victory that, like the ones we read of here in Judges. See, friends, Othniel was, uh, he was a great leader and saviour of God's people. He was the best judge, really, and yet he was never enough. He was never enough. Uh, God's people could never pin their hopes on him. It's the same for all the others, okay? Ehud, even Shamgar, uh, Deborah, Barak. They weren't who Israel ultimately needed. They were all kind of like signposts, pointing, pointing to someone far greater. And of course, uh, in, in Jesus, friends, we have the great leader of God's people, his great eternal deliverer. The great judge come to rescue us and guide us and give us his peace. And his victory was not, it wasn't just against Kushan Rishathayim, the doubly wicked, okay? It wasn't just against one tyrant. 
Our great Saviour has won victory over the great enemies of this world, over everything that is evil, over all sin and death and the devil. And friends, not only has he won this victory, he continues to be this great judge and leader and guide and ruler of his people. We have him today. So we saw kind of earlier how everything about the Othniel story points to God being at work and Othniel's sort of the instrument that God used to bring about his salvation. But Jesus is God himself come to save his people. God himself come into his world, uh, who not only has the spirit of the Lord on him, but who pours out that same spirit onto his people. Othniel was a good judge, friends, but in the end he, I mean, what, what's, this, what's the same thing that happens to Othniel, to Ehud, to Shamgar, to Deborah, to Barak, to Gideon, to, no matter how good they were, they all died, right? <laughs> they all died. Their time as a judge was always limited. But Jesus, our great deliverer, is not dead. He's not dead. He defeated death. And he didn't just bring rest to one sort of plot of land for 40 years or 80 years or however long it was. He has won a universal rest, a universal peace in a new heavens and a new earth that he will bring in. And his victory goes on forever, friends. His spirit is poured out on us uh, and through his spirit and his word given to us, he is just as much with us today as Othniel was with the people of Israel back then. Well, friends, uh, there's so much there that we can talk about, but isn't, isn't that, I mean, isn't that something... Um, to sing about. Isn't it something to, to sing about and something to rejoice in? I just want to finish, though, this morning by thinking through some of, the, some of the reasons why this victory of God, the great eternal victory that he has won in Christ, the great victory that all the judges were always pointing towards, uh, why that... some of the reasons why it doesn't actually cause us to sing, doesn't fill our hearts with wonder and joy, Uh, some some of the reasons why it doesn't cause us to celebrate. And you remember where we started these guys on VE Day. Uh, The people who celebrated VE Day were just so relieved and happy. They were so full of joy. I think they sang because of two things they knew. They knew two things. They knew the horror of the enemy and they knew the certainty of its defeat. They knew the horror of the enemy and they knew the certainty of its defeat. And it's the same with us, living in this greater eternal victory of God. But friends, if, uh, if the reality of God's victory doesn't, doesn't do this to us, it doesn't fill us with joy. It may be, on the one hand, uh, perhaps it's because we've forgotten or we've never quite sort of grappled with the horror of our enemy, <laughs> the horror of our enemy, our, our, um, 
our world and our culture, we're so good at kind of sanitizing sin. You know, hiding death behind closed doors. It's, you, know, you can go for years and years and years without any real contact with the reality of those things. Making light of, um, making light of uh, evil and the devil and sin. It's, uh, friends, it's hard to really rejoice at the news that Jesus has defeated sin and death and the devil. Uh, when we don't really think sin's that bad. It's hard to rejoice in the news that death is defeated when we've just spent years and years hiding it away and not thinking about it and not letting it impact us. We become sanitised and dull to the horror of our enemy. And it stops us from seeing how terrifying they are, how terrifying these enemies are. Doubly wicked doesn't even begin to get at it, friends. These are the enemies that have enslaved and destroyed and distorted all of humanity since the fall. And these, these enemies, they're not just out there. Okay. They're not just out there. If we're honest enough with ourselves, we'll know that our rebellion against God, that our refusal to trust Him and to love Him and to worship Him our seeking after the idols of the world around us. Uh, if we're honest enough, we'll know that it's just, that's not a small thing. It's not something we shrug our shoulders at. It's wicked. It is wicked. The sin that's in here, the brokenness that's out there, the death that cuts all of us off, they are our terrible enemies. And in Jesus, they are defeated. They are defeated. Well, perhaps on the one hand, this news doesn't fill us with joy because we've just forgotten something of the terror of our enemy. <laughs> uh, but we saw it's not just that they knew that, they knew the certainty of... So, I mean, perhaps, perhaps you, friends, that's not you, <laughs> what I was just describing... You're all too familiar with the horror of the enemy. Okay? You're all too familiar with it. Um, you know the cruel sting of death. You know the destructive consequence of some sin, some kind of enslaving idol. Uh, it's not the reality of their terror that you struggle with. It's the certainty of their defeat that you struggle with. And it's hard to rejoice in God's victory when you're not sure of that victory. Instead of being sanitised and dull, like well, you know, those of us who sort of uh, shut ourselves off from the, the evil of the world, instead of that, the other, we can swing to the other way uh, instead of being sanitised and dull, of being cynical and sort of despairing in the face of these realities. The problem is just too big. The pain is too much. Uh, we've been let down too many times. And we just can't bring ourselves to really believe that eternal joy and peace is available for us in Christ. Um, there's a great scene uh, right towards the end of 
uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's great um, series of novels, The Lord of the Rings. You know, you, you, many of them will know it's, uh, it's this scene where Frodo and Sam, they've gone on this incredible journey. They're travelling through the plains of Mordor towards Mount Doom, if you know the story. Uh, they are in absolute despair. I mean, they're um, they don't know how they're going to get there. They're facing incredible danger. Uh, the sky is thick with dark ash, the sort of ash that's spewed out of Mount Doom. You know, if, you, if you've read the story, you'll know it's, a, uh, it's this incredible sort of moment. And there's a key moment in that story where Tolkien writes about Sam. Okay? Sam's one of these hobbits, if you don't know the story. Uh, he's out there with Frodo, absolutely nothing, nothing to go for him. Um, and he looks up, and through the ash, just for a moment, he sees through the darkness in the sky, and he sees this bright, shining star, this white, shining star in the sky. And he says, the Tolkien writes, The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. The thought pierced him that in the end the shadow, I mean, they were in the thick of the shadow, Frodo and Sam, if you've read the story. The thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing and there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus, we have the brightest light and the highest beauty forever beyond the reach of the shadow. Forever beyond it. I just want to read out to finish one verse from John's Gospel. And if we have... Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps where you're at is not having forgotten the horror of the enemy. Perhaps this is more where you're at. Uh, you know the horror too well and uh, it's the certainty of its defeat uh, that you struggle with. I just want to read this verse out from John's Gospel. An uh, incredible verse. And if there's any hope that we have uh, in the face of the trouble of this world... It's not in ourselves, it's only in Jesus himself. Jesus says to his disciples, I've told you these things so that in me, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, we will have trouble, friends. Lots of it. But in Jesus, we may have peace. In his death and resurrection, he has overcome the world. He has promised to return, to wipe every tear away, and to make everything new. So, friends, take heart. Let's rejoice in the incredible victory that God has won for us in him. Let's pray. Will you pray with me? Our great God and heavenly Father, 
we praise you for your incredible mercy in saving your people Israel time and time again.